This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of August 31st, 2015, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 241 of Defender Radio. Predator control is a nasty business. Millions of animals are killed each year around the country to protect livestock, ecosystems, and, depending on who you listen to, children. The problem with this entire system of treating predators as the bad guy is that we're missing the biggest and the baddest of them all. Us. In a peer-reviewed paper published in the journal Science, researchers from the Raincoast Conservation Foundation, University of Victoria, and the Hakai Institute pulled data from hundreds of studies worldwide to confirm that humans are dangerous super-predators. To dive into how human actions are impacting fish populations, carnivore and herbivore relationships, and even changing the very course of evolution before our eyes, Defender Radio was fortunate to be joined by Raincoast Science Director and Hakai Raincoast Professor at the University of Victoria, Dr. Chris Daramont. Before we get into the, the bones of this study, can we talk about what a predator is, just your regular predator in the wild? What role do they fill uh, in an ecosystem, generally speaking? So in, in general, in the wild, we define uh, a predator as, as any animal that kills another animal for food. Um, some people extend it a little more generously to herbivores that, that um, kill plants, which they occasionally do when they browse or, or graze. But generally, we, we consider uh, predation as, as, as the process whereby one animal eats another. And it's one of those few processes, predation, that is central to ecosystem function, evolution, and ultimately benefits to humanity. Uh, so predation's up there with reproduction, competition, and parasitism as a central process. And the benefits uh, of predation are manifold. Um, the most obvious is that predation tends to keep in check those animals one trophic level below or one uh, level of, of feeding interactions below. And a primary example, and those of us who live in residential areas uh, where large vertebrate predators like wolves and cougars no longer exist, uh, the deer have exploded in numbers because they... Um, uh, live without that top-down control by predators, and that has a rippling effect on on ecosystems. We see this as an example in our gardens, but the same process works um, in wilder areas without predators. The base of the food web, the plants, um, when the deer are left unchecked or herbivores left unchecked, um, can be pretty compromised, and in doing so, um, the lives of other animals that live off those plants from insects to the birds we cherish also suffer. So um, having large predators in particular, vertebrate predators in ecosystems is really important because without them, the impacts are felt all up and down the food web. And we, we've certainly seen more and more science coming out to support that in the last, uh, even just 10 years, um, 
with uh, the, the obvious examples being places like Australia, uh, which has that kind of island ecosystem and um, the, the ongoing ecological sort of experiment of life in uh, Yellowstone with the, the reintroduction of wolves and how it influences everything from grizzly bears to, uh, to riverbeds. Um, that, that's right. And that leads into what I, I find just absolutely fascinating that, that Raincoast and you and your colleagues have done this study. Um, and at first I thought, I, I can honestly say I thought it was a bit. I thought it was a sarcastic uh, mm. Look at what we did, neater, neater. But you did real science on this. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about super predators. Uh, we, sure. you, you've just given a very eloquent designation for what a predator is in an ecosystem. But what is a super predator? Is this something out of Michael Crichton, or is this a, a real thing? Yeah, super predator certainly is a is a catchy phrase, but but we define it in a sort of technical and scholarly way in, in noting that that humans alone are common and highly exploitative predators of predators. That is to say, we commonly and very aggressively exploit uh, large carnivores in particular at, at rates an order of magnitude higher than those large carnivores to kill each kill each other, which they do occasionally. So that's the primary reason we invoke the super predator moniker. But there are other reasons, of course, no other predator except human beings has such a wide dietary breadth. That is to say that we, if, if it has edible flesh, we are killing and consuming it on, on the planet if we can get to it. And most things we have gotten to, and that includes fishes at enormous depths in the, in the middle of the oceans. Uh, our impacts are like none other. Um, and what I mean by that is on ecological timescales at least, at least in in a matter of years or decades, we're the only predator um, that can drive prey uh, into the ground, drive population declines. Uh, we're the only predator, for example, that can change the evolutionary trajectories of, of prey in rapid ways that are counter to the forces, evolutionary forces that have shaped them via other predators over over millennia or even millions of years. So it's that we prey on predators commonly and that our impacts and predatory niche is so broad and so um, uh, influential that, that we feel quite justified in referring to humans as super predators. Well, looking at some of the, the stats that are highlighted in your, uh, your beautiful infographics that your team put together, um, uh, there, there are a few that I really want to touch on. One of them, and this came up in a discussion with my partner last night, was the exploiting adult fish at 14 times the typical rate of a non-human predator. Um, and it, when, when I saw that, now I, I, I hadn't read the details behind that, but my belief would be that it has to do with our, uh, you know, uh, again, just to, to use the, the ongoing terminology, our, our depredation of these animals is wildly inefficient for their actual use. 
Um, like, is, is that where that, like starting with the fish, is that where the problem comes in? Like, how are we doing this? Do, do you mean, Michael, by widely inefficient that, that we create a lot of waste or how that, that meat is distributed or uh, I'm not clear well, on that? All, all of the above, really. I okay. mean, like, it, you know, if we're going out to try and get tuna, we end up catching how many other fish? I uh, we kill a shark and only keep the fin. Man, right, so right. So, yeah, certainly those, those, um, inefficiencies and in, in especially in the oceans rather coarse approximate even sloppy ways of acting as a predator best best exemplified by by bycatch is is important but probably more universally relevant here is the fact that humans diverge really drastically with the most non-human predators in the ocean in that we target adult prey. Most predation in the ocean um, is focused on the newly born, the juvenile life stages. And there's a number of reasons for that. Um, small fish can't accelerate very quickly and end up in the jaws of larger fish. Uh, and as they grow, they become quicker and more capable of evading predation. Small fish can be chomped by larger fish. Um, whereas when a fish gets to a certain size, there's a process called gape limitation. And that is to say, larger fish just can't get their mouths around bigger fish. Uh, that's another process that, that focuses the attention of predators at the juvenile life stages. Uh, but probably the uh, more direct reason is that there's incredible abundance of juveniles. So whereas we're used to thinking of, you know, say humans have, I don't know, 2.2, 2.5 kids in their lifetime, fishes have hundreds of thousands or more commonly, millions even in, in, in some cases if, if they're allowed to grow larger. And most of those juveniles don't survive. Victims of um, bad environmental conditions, starvation, accident, disease, and primarily predation by other predators. Um, and we consider that the reproductive interest of fish populations. And it's not to say it's expendable, but that's where the surplus is in nature. And that's where almost all predators make their living. Let's contrast this with human beings. Um, in most, but not all cases, we target large individuals. And we consider that the reproductive capital. These are the big baby-making machines of the fish world, especially the larger females that will have way more eggs and much higher productivity than the younger females. That's what we target. And in doing so, we're drawing down that reproductive capital. And it's that, in particular, divergent behavior that has set up uh, the context for, for some pretty um, excessive over-exploitation in our oceans. Okay, um, and I, I am no fish expert. I, I know I, I was never a big fan of it, unless it was deep fried and covered in ketchup. Um, uh, but when we start talking about uh, uh, mammalian carnivores, which is something I have a, a fair bit more knowledge of, um, and uh, again, you've got stats here uh, that uh, human super predators kill adult carnivores at nine times the typical rate at which carnivores kill one another. Um and kill adult carnivores uh, at four times the typical rate they kill herbivores. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm trying to think of how to phrase this really appropriately because there's so many sort of 
crossovers in this mm-hmm. in this entire subject matter, and that's that's what I find so fascinating about it all. Um, but if we we stick at at the very basic level of necessity uh, of the wild, so if we've got a, a, a pack of wolves, they go out, they take down a deer. Um, mm-hmm. That's what they do. Mm-hmm. They eat that deer, mm-hmm. but they take the one that is most easily caught, I guess, mm-hmm. um, which is also sort of a role in evolution. So are we as humans, by going after the larger animals, impacting more than just the numbers? Um, because again, if you go after large females or large males, which are reproducing, uh, you're, you're going to impact the ability to reproduce, obviously in- increase population. But are we also impacting the ability uh, of these animals to learn and grow and thrive uh, and thereby even, you know, impacting evolution in the long term? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you mentioned a couple of things that are relevant. Absolutely. When human hunters target larger individuals and populations, they can have a couple of effects. They can remove larger, older, more knowledgeable animals that particularly in social species have um, knowledge that they could pass on to to younger individuals in, in the population. Um, the other implication is animals that are, well, for lack of a better word, and actually it's appropriate word, persecuted, uh, not for not for food, but rather for competitive or, or trophy reasons. Animals like like wolves. Um, their age structure is reduced. That is to say that the probability of any one wolf living past three, four, five years of age is very, very low. You just don't get those old matriarchs and patriarchs anymore. So you have a bunch of essentially teenagers running around a landscape, and those teenagers are evidence has shown in in wolves, in, in cougars too, actually, that they're the animals that are more likely to engage in, in human wildlife um, context. So there's another potential behavioral implication of, of targeting um, large, older animals or even simply targeting too many animals so that no one animal can um, live more than a, than a certain age. You mentioned evolution and, um, and that's certainly relevant here. There's an emerging scientific literature that shows that because of humanity's high exploitation rates and very narrow phenotypic targets. That is to say, we, we choose phenotypes or, or uh, body sizes, for example, that are large and fast-growing individuals. We give a selective advantage, an evolutionary selective advantage to those fish or other animals that grow more slowly and that reproduce early. Um, because they're the ones that are not subject to our high harvest. So what that does, in a relative blink of an eye on evolutionary timescales on the order of decades, is this has created smaller fishes. This has created fishes that reproduce at younger ages. This has created smaller horn sizes in bighorn sheep. And the list goes on. Um, so our, our impacts can be behavioral, ecological, and evolutionary. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring, 
Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment, your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control. We'll humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at GatesWildlifeControl.com or call 416-750-9453. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing keystone species. Beaver dams help clean water, promote songbird diversity, encourage fish populations, and create better soil and a cleaner environment. Beavers are good for Canada, but will we be good to them? Find out more at FurBearerDefenders.com and give a damn about beavers. This is Defender Radio. We're back with more of our in-depth interview on the latest research about humans, the world's super predators, with Dr. Chris Daramont. I'm fascinated by the entire concept of evolution, uh, particularly uh, because I'm not a scientist, I'm a journalist, and because I am a science geek, Mm -hmm. uh, and I have way too much time on my hands after hours, so I I constantly play in my mind with all the what ifs um, in a, a, a vapid attempt to write fiction. Fun. Um, and one of the things that I, uh, uh, I really wonder about um, is mesopredator release, uh, which my understanding of which is when predators are removed mesopredators, which uh, I guess you would call tertiary predators or uh, sort of second level predators. Yep, that's right. Um, their populations, which are ordinarily controlled, not, necess- through, not necessarily through a direct action of a top order predator, mm-hmm. but simply by their presence or resource competition, right. um, are, are allowed to expand. And that's where we're seeing animals ranging from coyotes to foxes to raccoons right. uh, to, to skunks. That's right. Uh, really changing populations and eventually behaviors. And I, I think the urban coyote and the urban raccoon are probably two of the most fascinating ones to look at in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this is something that, again, sort of we can sit now in 2015 and say it is a result of these decades of mismanagement and change to the landscape and this and that. Mm-hmm. But is there any way we can take what we've learned from those changes and apply it to future policy, apply it to how we're managing wildlife today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I mean, as humans, we're, we're in theory blessed with this incredible capacity to, to learn from our previous mistakes or, or accomplishments. And, and, and the wildlife management literature or history is, is in fact littered with many mistakes. Um, and one of them, of course, is the removal or, or declines of large carnivores in many parts of the world, which has allowed these, these mesocarnivores, meso as wonderful as they are in intact systems, serving a very important role, 
but they have uh, expanded to population sizes that have impacts on on things like native songbirds um, and in turn uh, vegetation. So the best wildlife management policy would would be designed to keep all levels in the trophic web um, intact. And of course, the, the the biggest challenge there is at the level of the large carnivore. Um, with which humanity has not had a good relationship uh, be because our our niche, I guess, our our foods that we both target as as hunters or livestock growers, for example, um, put us in direct conflict with one another, and and probably actually spinning off from that, there's a culture of of fear and mistrust and, and in many places hatred uh, for these animals. So the the best thing we can do to achieve um, a new relationship with with large carnivores is is to cultivate um, tolerance for them, and that may take many forms from compensation uh, to livestock owners who are otherwise tempted to to persecute uh, nearby wolves to helping them shape better guardianship practices with their flocks or herds um, to educating people in the city and in the rural rural areas about um, safe protocols for living uh, or working in carnivore country um, etc so in that regard there's lots of work to do um, I'm particularly optimistic um, about another dimension of, of tolerance for carnivores, and that is, is creating and, and sort of boosting our collective signal in terms of our compassion for them. So why I'm optimistic is, is because of the Cecil case, which has shown to me and, and probably many others this global moral outrage that, that killing an animal like a large carnivore, not to eat, not to put food on one's table, but to feed one's ego, is clearly not something that most of society is willing to grant social license for. And I think we might be seeing uh, a bit of a tide turning now. So that sort of sport hunting of large carnivores uh, will hopefully be a thing of the past. I, I also have been, uh, uh, like everybody else, really relate, uh, that has an interest or is involved with wildlife professionally in any way I've been following that case um, mm -hmm. and, and sort of all of the fallout and the spin out from it. Um, mm -hmm. And what I find interesting, again, so you have this, this vast study. Uh, and, and it truly is uh, quite significant. It was drawn from over 300 other studies right. um, using meta-analysis. Um, and, you know, you've, you've got clear evidence here mm -hmm. that we as a, a biological species are mm -hmm. acting or behaving in a manner that is not good for the ecosystem. That's right. Uh, and, and is very likely not natural. Um, That's right we've got the ecological science that shows trophy hunting is bad for the population and bad for, for the ecosystem. <laughs> but at what point can we say, so we've got two types of science here and now we need the ethical arguments and, and we've got, we, we've got some pretty big thinkers out there in terms of ethicists and mm -hmm. philosophers working on this kind of stuff, particularly right. in the field of anthrozoology. That's so, right. How do we then sort of say, you know, it, yes, we've got the science to prove this point. 
And now we've got the ethics. So how do we sort of shift that conversation forward? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm a big um, proponent of, of invoking change from the bottom up. Uh, so whereas some people might say, you know, we have the science and, and a clear ethical argument. Let's go to the managers and really try to convince them that uh, – the science saying this is dangerous to do this to large carnivores is bad. Your your management science and and ethically it's not in uh, agreement with most of society. And to some extent that can and does work, but it's much more likely to work when you have uh, uh, informed, inspired, and empowered electorate uh, or society that can pressure uh, decision makers. Uh, at the political level that can instruct those managers to change policy. And there's, you know, flagship examples of that uh, in wildlife and other, you know, social policy uh, throughout North America and beyond. Uh, For example, in in California, where I used to live, um, there was uh, a referendum to end the hunting of cougars or mountain lions. Um, And it wasn't driven by a fear of low population numbers. In fact, in many areas, they're doing rather well. Um, And furthermore, they they, uh, find themselves in human-wildlife conflict often, um, killing dogs or even even people. But despite those realities, people came to the realization and voted for it, expressed their their ethics. in a referendum that was successful that has um, stopped the sport hunting of, of mountain lions in all of California. And, and that, to me, is impressive. I'll give you another example in, in Canada and right here in British Columbia that, that does not have a happy ending yet, but it's getting there, and that is the sport hunting, trophy hunting of grizzly bears, especially in, in coastal British Columbia. Um, there's been some enormous success already, and that is that Rain Coast Conservation Foundation has bought out several guide outfitter licenses, which gives typical guide outfitters the exclusive rights to bring foreign hunters, not non-BC resident hunters, into exclusive territories to kill uh, carnivores. Rain Coast has bought those, exercises that license, and brings out clients, hunters, so to speak, but they shoot these bears and wolves um, again and again, but with a camera, not a gun. And so that has shut off about half of the uh, grizzly bear hunting in about half of a massive 60,000 square kilometer area. Um, Where I think the rest of the solution lies is with indigenous people of the area. Uh, This is untreated um, land in Canada. Most Canada, most of Canada is under under treaty relationships, uh, contracts, so to speak, between Indigenous people and 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 Canada. On the West Coast, there are no treaties, and these people um, have never given up their land or their right to their their resources, and have a real legitimate claim and jurisdiction over those resources. And they've made it quite clear in formal expressions of trophy hunting bans that that behavior is no longer permitted in their sovereign territories. And the provincial government of BC uh, being 
believe that they are. Uh, I'll be honest. Um, have have sought to ignore that to the best extent possible. But my feeling is they can no longer ignore it for a host of reasons. Number one is that the polling data in British Columbia, some independent third party um, polls, um, in large part owing to the efforts, educational efforts, outreach efforts by Indigenous people, have shown that about 90% of British Columbians, including hunters at about the same rate, do not support trophy hunting. And I can see why hunters don't support it, because the fringe hunters that are interested in in trophy hunting, not for food, but to feed their egos, um, recognize that that uh, or sorry, the, the food hunters recognize that the fringe hunters, the trophy hunters, are giving them a bad name, that they're eroding an already um, fragile social license for hunting in British Columbia. Um, there might be some economic reasons, too, why we might see an end to the rest of the trophy hunting in the area, because it, it's quite clear now that the money from ecotourism brings in much more money than does the 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 killing of of bears and those two activities just can't exist side by side yeah and raincoast is the uh, organization that did the very impressive economic study in fact showing that uh, uh the the photography or the ecotourism is significantly more profitable in the short and long term than trophy hunting is. Um, that's that's and, right. That's right. Raincoast worked with uh, some UBC University of British Columbia economists, I think, in 2003 to do that first analysis. And then at that time, the ratio was five to one ecotourism revenue over hunting revenue, and that's direct and indirect revenue. There's a study out of Stanford um, last year, I guess, and that ratio has jumped up to 14 times the revenue comes in from the still burgeoning, growing uh, wildlife ecotourism industry. And it's clear, despite what, what government biologists might want to hope, uh, these, these activities just do not, um, are, are not compatible. Well, that is to say that the populations that are hunted behave very differently from those that are, are free from persecution. And that uh, most recent study was done with the Heltsuk First Nations, I believe, um, which was uh, a big part of their uh, their recent work, was showing we can do the science too. Um, that's yeah. right. That's right. The Heltsuk. Uh, well, all, all the coastal First Nations with whom we work uh, at Raincoast um, are stepping up investing in in science that informs their resource resource management decisions, uh, decisions that are made um, by drawing on both their own local knowledge uh, from being on that landscape for 10,000 years or more, and as well as some of the new tools and techniques we can bring as 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 collaborators, so that they're they're behaving like governments, like sovereign governments, using evidence-based. Um, um, uh, strategies to to inform their policy, and and I I would say quite clearly that that Canada and British Columbia um, should pause and take note of what of what um, legitimate well functioning governments <laughs> are doing um, in coastal BC um, because clearly BC and Canada has lost its way. Yes, um, I, I think that's quite clear to pretty much everybody except for members of certain governments. Um, that's 
now, quite clear. And I, I please forgive me, and I, and I hope the audience forgives me. I've been jumping all over the place in our discussion today, and I'm normally much more professional. But like I said, this I love this study. I love this subject matter. So I just things keep popping into my head as I look back at my notes. Um, sure. One of the things that is often said is the need to control populations. Um, and and as you know, we work primarily on the trapping portfolio. Um, so we, we, we frequently hear about, oh, well, we need to you know trap wolves to keep the populations in check so there's no disease. Um, and an argument I have tried to make, and again, without that scientific background, I'm really not qualified nor listened to uh, uh, when I say it. But to me, when you randomly trap animals from a population... Uh, and, and again, we'll use carnivores, we'll use wolves. One of the big threats mm-hmm. to them is going to be disease when they overpopulate. Mm-hmm. But by mm-hmm. randomly removing animals, could mm-hmm. you in fact be increasing the odds of disease? Because you're, you're not taking into account any of those adaptable traits uh, uh, and the, the heritable yeah. traits of you know, a strong mm-hmm. immune system or a prevalence for avoiding mm-hmm. certain types of illnesses. So could we be mm-hmm. making things worse for some of these populations in our attempts to control them? We could indeed. I mean, I, I, I don't know if anyone in particular that has studied how random removals of individuals could increase or decrease the frequency or severity of diseases. But as, as kind of a general reflection, the more we monkey around in wildlife systems and 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 try to play puppet master, uh, the more, and, and particularly the more unexpected uh, implications arise. Um, I do know in herbivore populations that are, are subject to disease, and this links back to some of our earlier conversation today, um, when they are subject to predation by large carnivores, uh, there is increased likelihood that diseases will be kept at bay in, in their frequency of erupting and the intensity once they erupt because precisely uh, large carnivores don't kill randomly. They, they tend to kill the newly born, the juveniles, and the nearly dead, the old, sick, or, or diseased, uh, and in doing so can control um, disease. And uh, I'm going to ask a question that is probably going to be wildly uncomfortable, but I like to make people uncomfortable from time to time. Sure. Um, (laughs) When we talk about wildlife populations, we talk about animals and ecosystems, uh, particularly Mm -hmm. when we start talking about them with trophy hunters, guide outfitters, and so on, uh, and the certain Mm -hmm. government biologists, um, they talk about the importance of managing ecosystems, the importance of managing the environments. But based on all kinds of other information, as well as this most recent study that shows how really terrible we as a people are or can be for the environment, should we not be talking about human population control as well then? Maybe not eugenics, but you know, I mean, if, if we're going to have that biological discussion, how can we disclude ourselves from it? Right. No, you're you're quite right, and this is this is uh, a subject matter we brought up in our paper that that no predator can be sustainable when its population, like ours, is is expanding at an exponential rate. I mean, it's this is simple mathematics. Um, um, our, our wild prey, you know, if we think on you know a, a centuries time scale, don't have 
don't have a hope, many of them, um, with a predator uh, that is subsidized by aquaculture and agriculture as ours is, um, uh, and therefore can create or exist at such high uh, population densities. This has an enormous effect on on wild prey that we also eat. So clearly, you know, the elephant in the room in any environmental um, issue is is population growth absolutely and people have actually shown and I say this as a father of two that despite our best intentions uh, people with children wanting to reduce individual footprints of of, of offspring of children and and families um, there's only so much you can do um, without looking at the multiplier that is to say the number of people that, that is to say even our best efforts of reducing our footprint hardly makes a dent on our global footprint when our when our population is growing so quickly. So this seems like a intractable um, problem. People are are of course thinking about this and and working on it. Uh, for example, in in the so-called developing nations, uh, birth rates are going down in lockstep with. Um, education, particularly of, of females. Um, so I don't know a lot about this, but my understanding is once those opportunities are granted to especially females, birth rates go down. And, and that's one um, glimmer of hope in an otherwise somewhat uh, pessimistic outlook yeah. for humanity. The other part about managing humans is not managing numbers, but rather managing behavior. Um, my personal view is fish and, and wildlife can manage themselves quite quite fine. Thank you very much. It's 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 really a challenge about managing human behavior um, in terms of how much people exploit, when they exploit, where they exploit, which animals they exploit, and and so on. And that reaffirms for me that as a vegan with no children, I am morally superior to everybody. Thank you. You, you absolutely <laughs> that I'm looking way up to you on the high road. Absolutely. Yes, and by, by, in all and by pointing it out, that just escalates true. it more. Um, that's, that's right. That's now, right. I, I, I do want to wrap up. Uh, I know you're, you're very busy this time of year. Um, and sure. I guess my, my question has to be as a, as a, as a researcher, uh, as clearly an advocate for wildlife, as a father, as like as a family man, what do you mm -hmm. hope is going to come? This this study is immense, and in my opinion, it is very likely one of the most important documents that will come out of Raincoast, out of BC, out of Canada for a long, long time. Mm. Uh, so what do you hope, as all of these things you are, for the future as a result of this study? Mm -hmm. I, th I think fundamentally, I think when... When society thinks about predators, they 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 maybe are more likely now to think not of of wolves and say lions or even spiders as as they as they rightly should, but they they also think of ourselves as not only a predator but but the planet's dominant predator. So from a kind of changing the conversation perspective, that that's one of our our big hopes. Um, truth is, I'm rather pessimistic in much of the, the marine world, um, where there's enormous economic drivers and fisheries biologists who will um, 
who believe in and advocate um, against so-called underfishing, if you will believe that. Um, so I'm rather pessimistic there. Where I do have hope, um, and it's a little more um, relevant to fur bearers, is in terms of large carnivores. The situation is is dire, even dire or dire than the the marine world. But what the Cecil case has has um, instilled in me is kind of a new hope in knowing that that by and large society is no longer willing to grant social license to uh, men that that hunt for frivolous reasons for 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 their egos for for sport for trophy etc or even fashion um, so with that optimism. Um, uh, I am, I'm moving forward, and large carnivores are, are particularly special animals to me. To learn more about this incredible research and other projects at Raincoast Conservation Foundation, the Hakai Institute, and the University of Victoria, follow the links on this week's blog at furbeardefenders.com. That's the show for this week, folks. I'd like to thank Dr. Chris Daramont for his time as well as Brad Gates of AAA Gates Wildlife Control for his ongoing support. Until next time, this is Michael Howie reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.